Yes, you are listening to Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. Uh, you with me, Benjamin Mushatama. Remember, we're on DSTV on Channel 802 on the audio bouquet. And uh, our service into the continent is the frequency 9625 uh, kilohertz on the 31-meter band to southern Africa. Well, last week we had a, a great conversation really looking at uh, uh, really the consequences and the causes of uh, corruption on uh, the African continent uh, looking at illicit flows. And something that stood out in that conversation was the fact that Rwanda has become a very much of an example when it comes to curbing and, and minimizing corruption in, in, in the country. But it seems Rwanda is pioneering itself in various different uh, uh, sectors and it's getting this remarkable economic and social recovery, especially taking in consideration the consequences of the devastating 1994 genocide. The country is now politically stable with well-functioning institutions, rule of law, and zero tolerance for corruption. It has an 8% average year-on-year GDP growth, stable inflation and exchange rates. Rwanda is now also becoming very competitive in terms of business. And also, let's not forget its uh, ITC sector as well and uh, it's become one of the most competitive places in business on in east africa and actually third in africa the country's development board continues to collaborate with various institutions in rwanda to improve its economic competitiveness as well as to create a favorable environment uh, for business now we have jagan great johnson who was with us uh, last week helping us with uh, looking at the real advancements that had been made in that conversation looking at corruption. Jurgen Gray Johnson is the advocacy officer with the Africa Governance Monitoring and Advocacy Project, which is supported by the Africa Foundations of the Open Society Foundations. And also we've got on the line, we've got uh, Victor uh, Homo Eshwa. Now, I hope, I hope I'm saying that correctly, who's an African business expert uh, joining us on the line. And I think we have uh, Stephen Gruzd on the line as well, who is the program head for a governance at the Africa Peer Review Mechanism, uh, which is uh, uh, part of the South African Institute for International Affairs. Now, let me start uh, with you, uh, Jurgen. Last week, we were talking about this conversation. It's very relevant for us uh, to start the conversation with you about how remarkable Rwanda has done. It has become this remarkable economic and social hub following the 1994 uh, uh, massacre. What, in your views, are the driving forces for the success of uh, Rwanda? Um, thanks for having me on the show. I think primarily it has to do with uh, governance and uh, um, uh, stringent policies um, that have been put in place. Um, one, some um, policies that um, really looks around uh, issues of uh, 
um, strengthened institutions, um, issues of uh, economic policy that makes it easier for people to start businesses or um, for foreign direct investment to come in. And also, most importantly, um, I think more long-term planning. Um, If you look at... uh, um, the history of Rwanda, um, it's been less than 25 years since the genocide took almost 900,000 lives over a period of 90 days. Um, it's a close conflict state and a very volatile region. Um, but then again, you know, uh, it's, it's basically punched above its weight and uh, the statistics um, really speak for themselves. Um, it's focusing um, really primarily now, moving away from an agrarian um, society, looking more towards knowledge-based economy, um, services and conferencing is a big thing. And also the fact that just access to, 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 to Rwanda, the ease of doing business, um, I think it's second um, on the continent only to Mauritius. Um, and, uh, you know, the, 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 the numbers started speak for themselves. It's done very well in this um, gender balancing um, to make it one of the highest in the world. 63% of women are in parliament. Um, issues around education is also another thing. So, You'll see that uh, what Rwanda has done in the last 25 years is really to roll out um, a medium to a long-term plan um, that has to do with one, the stabilizing factor, um, you know, uh, um, to, to ensure that um, the country is at peace with itself, it's stable, and also that the institutions are functioning. Mm, I mean, that's the primary, that's sure. the primary lesson for most African countries to learn that you need to have strong institutions that are dependable, mm. that there's visibility sure. um, for foreign direct investment, and then there's predictability as well. And I think Tanzania mm. has managed mm. to do that mm. very well. Mm. Let me move to you, uh, Mr. Victor Homoeshwana, who is uh, joining us as well. He's an African business expert. Uh, in terms of when you look at Rwanda, Jurgen Gray Johnson speaking about the great policies, the strong various institutions that make sure that there is a accountability when it comes uh, to business and also uh, when it comes to governance in the country. When you look at Rwanda as a shining star for the African continent, what do you see, Victor? Good morning, Benjamin and, and Jürgen and, and I think Stephen. Yes, that's it. Yeah. Jürgen mentioned a whole lot of points, the strengthening of the institutions. The institutions what institutions do, they take away the power from the individual. Because when you strengthen the institution, like the Rwanda Development Board, like the Ministry of Finance, you make it possible for people to know with consistency what they will get when they ask for a service. Whereas if you don't have strong institutions, it depends on what mood I mean. You come in as Benjamin, you qualify to register a business, but you catch me on a bad day and I say, no, come tomorrow. Whereas they did that. The mm. other thing is I think they figured out the ICT as the future. People talk about the fourth industrial revolution. Sure. They strengthened that because they knew they were never going to be able to build the industrial capacity, say, to match a country like Germany, which has had decades and decades to strengthen itself. Sure. But what I like about Rwanda is how the leadership of the country has managed to keep the conversation open. You know, in December, I went there for a, what they call the National Dialogue, mm-hmm. where I, I don't think anybody can imagine how fast and how thorough that dialogue is. Because remember, Rwanda has five provinces. Mm. I was at the Kigali Convention Center, and there were about, I don't know, the number of people, the thousands of people in that room. Every other province, Benjamin, had a venue similar to that. Wow, wow, wow where the people of Rwanda were seated, all of them listening and watching live, as the different commissions 
were reporting on progress. Mm. These people were able to follow the discussion. They were able to ask questions live. They were able to answer and give their comment. And most of all, these discussions were broadcast live on radio and television. Mm. And even better, you didn't, I, didn't, I don't remember any minister being asked to give an opening speech. <laughs> it, was, it was the people who are reporting on the commission. Okay, Great. we are fighting genocide ideology. Mm. This is the progress we are making. Only when your ministry is affected were you asked to answer. But most of all, they were conducting this conversation, Benjamin, in their own language. Mm. Come on now. <laughs> so it's, it's that Great. kind of accountability. It was the 14th year in a row. It's been 14 years since they started doing this and they do it without faith. But also knowing that they don't have the mineral vastness sure. of the DRC and focusing on tourism. I mean, look at what they did in the Gorilla Mountains there, how they were able to convert coaches into guardians of this heritage. Mm. And you have an option of seeing the gorillas from the DRC from Uganda. But I tell you, when I was there, we were about 80 people at a time going through an hour watching these things and paying $750. I think they now charge $1,000. But the beauty of it, again, is that of that money that they collect, 15% goes into the local development. Mm. Therefore, the locals have an incentive to be able to do what they do. How about the drones? The mm. drones. Just when even Amazon was struggling to get to deliver using drones, Mm. Rwanda decided, listen, we are a hilly country. We don't have enough money to build all the roads, but sure. medical care, and they took zip line and got it. So it's being able to know what you are good at and focusing on that and doing so religiously and mm. so tenaciously that, that it works. But let, let me pause there. Sure. Stephen, uh, Victor is highlighting the innovations uh, within Rwanda itself. I mean, when you when you look at the ITC uh, sector, it's really, really growing at a rapid rate compared to other African countries, even more rapidly than countries as developed as, as South Africa. And also you're seeing currently that uh, even the projections within the country's economy is expected to pick up pace and grow by 6.2%, largely driven by the recovery of its agriculture sector and growth in exports. Uh, your thoughts around how uh, um, Rwanda is doing so well, Stephen? Uh, good morning, and thanks so much for having me on the show. I think uh, I, I agree uh, in broad, uh, it broadly with what the other two panelists have said. Um, but I think uh, leadership is really crucial here. Sure. And uh, President Kagame has been focused, has been strategic, has looked at the strengths and weaknesses of his country, which, after all, is, is a, a small country with only 10 million people, uh, or, or I think up to 12 million people now, in landlocked, uh, hostile neighbors in some cases, so, you know, uh, lack of mineral resources. So what? But really trying to, to turn uh, weaknesses into strengths. So uh, the, the environmental uh, side has been mentioned, the guerrilla tourism, which is extremely popular, uh, and tur- tourism as a whole is growing. Um, I think, uh, you know, of a very strategic, uh, a lot of thinking has gone into the strategy of, of Rwanda and where it wants to go. Um, it's focused. It is, uh, you know, driven. And I think it's people are hardworking. Um, wh- wh- one thing is, uh, one of the things that's uh, very unique to, to Rwanda is that um, once a month, 
it is compulsory, I think on the last Saturday of the month, to do community service and to clean up your neighborhood for a few hours. Oh, that's cool. And, and every sure. citizen goes out and does that. So it instills this discipline um, and this devotion to, to the country. I think it's also joined uh, the East African community in recent years. So it has a, a greater regional market. Um, and I remember my, my first and only trip to Rwanda was a, was a few years ago for a conference in 2006. But I remember at, even then uh, they, were, they were looking at the IT sector as a possible uh, growth area because it depends on knowledge rather than on resources. And um, at that point they were putting together their own computers and one of the brands I remember was called the Gorilla 1000. Mm. Now I'm not sure if the Gorilla 1000 still exists, but uh, you can see that even you know, 10 years ago there was a, a targeting of, of the IT sector, of tourism, um, and and good strong leadership, which has its drawbacks, and that we might you know we may uh, get into that in the conversation. There are some uh, many who feel that uh, it's it's a kind of command economy, and it's a space for contestation and for uh, free political thought and discussion is is. Uh, more limited than in some other more democratic states. Well, we'll come to to those uh, particular areas of concern for you, Stephen. I've got on the line Stephen Cruz, who's the program head for governance of the African Peer Review Mechanism at the South African Institute for International Affairs, speaking there about uh, uh, the positivity of the uh, leadership within Rwanda, but asking some questions that we can investigate after our break. We also have uh, uh, Victor Homo Eswana, who is an African business expert there, him highlighting the fact that uh, uh, the ITC sector has been one that has also uh, seen uh, uh, Rwanda taking things forward in the country. Jürgen Gray Johnson was hailing the country for its various institutions in Rwanda that are actually ensuring that there's that economic and political uh, competitiveness that's still uh, put in check in the country. We'll uh, take a quick break and then we'll continue with our guests. Fascinating uh, thoughts coming from them. Yes, I'm still here. I'm still here. Yeah, yeah, no problem. I, 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 I'm, I'm okay. Let's, let's do it. Let's do it. Yeah. Well, at least today we have a positive story in the African continent. We're asking the question, is Rwanda becoming the economic powerhouse of East Africa? Well, on the line we have three great guests giving us their insights there. And I want to come to you, Jürgen Gray, because I started the conversation with you in terms of looking at uh, some of those uh, questions that were asked there by Stephen Cruz, highlighting that uh, there are some forms of criticism even within uh, the leadership framework of of uh, uh, Rwanda there. Are there some concerns for you when it comes to uh, some limitations and maybe some areas that we should be looking out as, despite the fact that we are speaking about the positivity uh, within uh, the structure of the Rwandan economy? 
Well, I think, uh, you know, no country is perfect. Um, I think um, that, that that's just a fact of life. It's a given. Um, but, um, you know, before before I get into it, I'd just like to just, just to state that, look, uh, Rwanda is a military power. Rwanda is a diplomatic power. And what it's trying to do now is basically to consolidate um, some of its economic gains to become an economic power, not only within the region, but on the entire continent as well. And for a small country of a population of just 12 million, that's landlocked, that's been talked about earlier, um, it's managed to, again, um, look at um, um, a forward-thinking um, strategy, um, a forward-thinking strategy in the sense that it's looking 10, 15, 20, 30 years down the line. I mean, which African continent, I mean, which African con- um, country today actually starts talking about putting together um, a, 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 a drone port? Um, um, that, that, that's really forward-thinking, and I think that, 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 that that's excellent because it actually tells you that it's looking into the future. But I think... More importantly, what Rwanda has managed to do is basically to look at the best global practices, to think global and act local. And I think that has actually served it very well going forward, especially in a, in a, in a, in a neighborhood that's extremely volatile, in a neighborhood that is um, um, forever filled with um, um, instability and other things like that. So as a result, yes, um, there, there has to be some areas um, where things would falter. And I think uh, the issues around um, opening up um, the democratic space has concerned some people. Um, the fact that uh, the, the third term issue um, with Paul Kagame seeking a third term um, and they go into the elections um, 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 later on next month um, has concerned a few people. But I mean, the other argument that some people have made is the fact that, uh, you know, again, you can't argue with results. Um, and just judging from where Rwanda has come for the last 25 years um, and to where it's headed. Uh, you know, you, you need to look at your balances. Um, you know, what's your opportunity cost? What can you take and what can you leave off? And I think currently as it stands, um, you know, Rwanda acts as a stabilizing factor in, in many areas, although others are concerned um, in the role that is playing in the DRC. So, again, it's checkered when you're looking at the governance issues. But, um, again, um, you know, the question also has to be asked, um, you know, the developmental um, role that the state has played, and especially, uh, as Steve had talked about, leadership. Um, I think uh, if we were to have a balance sheet, um, you know, take it or leave it, um, more or less, yes, there's some work to be done within the governance aspects of it, especially when it comes to the democracy, consolidating a democracy. That is true, but I think that would follow. That would follow, um, and, and, and let's see what happens in these next elections. Without a doubt, mm. um, Popi Yamit is going to win by a landslide. He mm. is popular in our country. There are no two ways about that. He's popular in the region. There are no two ways about that as well. Mm. Um, so I don't think that's in doubt. Um, the fact is that um, are we able to now start seeing after these elections um, some signs of uh, um, greater tolerance for um, um, internal criticism? Are we able to see um, great, greater tolerance um, for more political parties coming mm-hmm. on board? And uh, just to you know, just to round off on that, um, again, Rwanda is one of the very few countries, by the way, um, that has a hundred percent rate um, of um, political party contributions that are actually now submitted and uh, a declaration form is actually submitted to the office of the ombudsman and they know exactly where some of these monies are coming from so i think again um if we're talking about issues of democracy and uh, openness that is one practice that they're doing that other countries are doing mm. Stephen, let me bring that to you uh, can you elaborate on, on on your concerns that you were highlighting earlier before our break yes i mean i, I think uh, you know I, I agree a lot with what jagan has said and that the country has come a long way, but nevertheless, I, you know, it, it is a tightly controlled society, mm. and 
certainly, uh, I'm, you know, I'm not sure whether this is, is still the case, but it certainly was very prevalent when, when we visited Rwanda, um, uh, you know, 10 years ago, that people were quite scared to talk openly about uh, criticisms of the president or um, politics for fear of being labeled as a, a genocidaire, as somebody who wants to cre- uh, create genocide. And there are, there are laws on the statute books that... that uh, somewhat um, uh, balance this economic miracle with, with a political price. And, uh, you know, uh, one, can, one can perhaps excuse uh, Rwanda, given its really horrific and terrifying past, um, but people will not, you know, have their civil liberties curtailed forever. And, uh, you know, it, it does perhaps create problems further down the line if people uh, feel that there is no political alternative. Um, I agree, uh, Paul Kagame is immensely popular. Uh, a referendum went through with a huge margin last year uh, to allow uh, him to, to potentially stand uh, into the 2030s, because also Rwanda has a very long political uh, presidential term uh, of seven years, which is uh, probably one of the longest on the continent. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and President Kagame has, has served two of those terms. Uh, as well as being very close to the to the high levels of the government since uh, since 1994, um, he's a strong man. Uh, he, he has a, a military background, and uh, you know the state is it, it it has less of a free press than somewhere like uh, Kenya, for example, um, one of its neighbours, certainly South Africa, um, and and uh, yeah, those those are, that, those are some of the concerns I was hinting at. Victor, let me bring you in the conversation. Your thoughts? Yeah, I like I like uh, uh, Jurgen's balance sheet approach because in the end it's going to be a trade-off. But I also agree with Stephen that in the end, coming from a military background, we can understand why President Kagame had to do things. When he came in in '94, there was no time to consult. There was no room for democracy. He was taking charge and taking charge in very gruesome circumstances. So if you look at the balance sheet, you will find that, yes, coming from where they came, they had no choice but to have that military approach. In fact, the military in Rwanda has a very strong history. If, if we had time, we would be able to talk about it. But it's important to know that if in that context they were coming in, people getting piled on 10,000 a day, there was no room for you to say, okay, let's get democratic. Mm-hmm. That culture would have been carried into the way he runs the country. The difference, though, to Stephen, I'll say, is that he used that military background not to pile up resources for himself while ignoring the people. And that's why perhaps he's so popular, because when you ask the people of Rwanda, unlike, unlike him, I, I do go there a lot. In fact, I think I'll be there this weekend. And I was there in December, and I was there in May, and I was there in October. So Are you sure you're not Rwandan anymore, uh, exactly, Victor? Exactly, that's the question. Eh? That's, you should have my credentials. Yeah. But, but what I'm saying is, I do have to, I speak to taxi drivers, I go all over the country, and I ask them the same question. What do you make of your president? He's not a Democrat. And they say, yes, he's not a Democrat. We, we don't want to be a Democrat. We want to be effective. You see, that's, that's almost the difference they are having in the way they look at democracy. They don't look at it in a, in, if you like, just as a civil liberties issue. But I agree. My concern would be, can the country run without it? Because that's the real test of how strong the institutions would be. By this, I mean parliament. Will the RPF be able to have a successor? 
who can sustain this and be able to stem the risk of sliding back into whatever would have been the problem. If if the answer to those two questions would be yes and yes, then I'm happy. But I, I, I'm not a fan of his leadership. I admire and respect what he's been able to achieve using less than conventional methods. And if you look at what is happening all over the continent where there's a lot of indecision, again, going back to Jürgen's balance sheet approach, trade-off, I would take rather a military man <laughs> who's, a, who's got a strong hand on how things are going than leave a democracy that doesn't decide and nothing gets done. Well, you're listening to our panel discussion today, looking at Rwanda, shining light when it comes to it being this economic powerhouse, especially in East Africa, but not just in East Africa. It's becoming very uh, a leading uh, country when it comes to even uh, its landscape of innovation and the ITC sector. And that's what we're talking about today with our guests on the line. Remember, you can interact with us on our Twitter handle at Channel Africa One, or you can uh, go to our uh, African Dial. Twitter handle at African Dialogue. When I hear from you, we're asking this question Is uh, Rwanda becoming the economic powerhouse of East Africa? There, uh, give us your thoughts, or you can go to our email address info at channelafrica.org. We're going to take a quick break and uh, we're going to get uh, into you know some of the challenges in Africa. I know Africa has its highest rates of urbanization currently, but big the big challenge in that context, the fact that we do have poor infrastructure and hampered growth and development, is something that we starting to see in the current landscape of uh, our economies. So how do we actually utilize uh, Rwanda as an example of it being a good example or a great catalyst for innovation within these environments? Let's take a quick break. We'll be back. Welcome to Change Your Game on Channel Africa, the African perspective. We're coming to you from Johannesburg, South Africa. Well, that's a question that I get um, everywhere you Well, currently you're listening to African Dialogue right here on Channel Africa. Remember, we're in uh, uh, your country if you're around uh, Southern Africa. Uh, we're on the frequency 9625 kilohertz on the 31 meter band to Southern Africa. We're also on DSTV in South Africa and neighboring countries that have access to DSTV audio bouquet channel 802. That's where you can listen to us or you can stream us live. I know we have an international uh, community that listens to us on www.channelafrica.com. Africa.co.za. We are putting a spotlight on Rwanda, looking at the positives and also some of the dynamics within uh, its governance structure in, in the country. Uh, but I want to come back to you, Stephen, looking at uh, some of the challenges on the African continent. I was just speaking about urbanization has become uh, really the in thing on the African continent, but we have the challenge of infrastructure, also diversification of economies, something that's still a challenge we see 
hampered growth and development on the continent. How do we use Rwanda as an example for the kind of innovation that it's shown? Well, I think uh, everybody's alluded to it, but it's it's planning. <laughs> Um, you know, anticipate, project, research, see what your cities are going to look like, uh, likely to look like in five years' time, ten years' time, twenty years' time, fifty years' time, a hundred years' time, and and plan for that. I mean, you know, I think generally our our cities are often uh, the remnants of what the colonialists left, and then we we built them up, but we really um, can't cap- really can't cope for the influx of both. Uh, national citizens coming from the rural areas, and of course the very big uh, refugee and migration problem that we have um, around the continent, especially as people flee conflicts in different parts of the continent. So, um, you know, good planning is is something that Rwanda does fantastically well, and is a great example for for other countries. I mean, there was a there was a period certainly straight after the the genocide where many of the intellectuals in Rwanda were were deliberately targeted and wiped out in in 1994. And there's been a gradual rebuilding of developing think tanks, developing research institutions, sometimes bringing in the best experts from around the world, getting them to train local Rwandans. So to build up that capacity to really be able to project where are we and where do we need to go. Um, Rwanda's not alone in in um, forging strong ties with China, and China has prioritized infrastructure development on in Africa, um, partly because it, it, its its own economy needs the minerals and and the materials that that Africa supplies, and in order to get them out of the ground and to the ports, there have to be roads and railways and mines um, and and telecommunications. So um, I think infrastructure is certainly a, a, a great need. In Africa, and China is one of those investors that's very keen to uh, to, to enhance developments uh, in that area. You just have to look at uh, Rwanda's near neighbour, Ethiopia, where China has become uh, very deeply involved in building rail infrastructure, um, a, a new high-speed link between, or a, a new railway between um, Addis Ababa and the port of Djibouti mm. to get uh, imports and exports uh, to the sea, uh, a light railway in, in, in Addis Ababa itself. Um, and, and all of this is, is done with Chinese investments and Chinese knowledge. But it's, of course, it's not only Chinese. There are uh, many private sector investors from South Africa, from other countries that are very interested in infrastructure, the traditional partners. But I think also what Rwanda has done well is, is um, used the fact that it received a lot of uh, donor funding, um, certainly uh, spread after the genocide and in the years and decades thereafter, and has managed to make good use of that rather than and I think also both both uh, speakers have alluded to the fact that um, uh, Paul Kagame may be a strong man, but it does not appear that he's a corrupt man. Uh, and he sets a very strong moral example that looting and uh, state capture and uh, abusing the economy are, are not going to be acceptable. Um, and, and corruption is, is relatively, perceptions of corruption is relatively low um, in Rwanda. And, and finally, I think Diversification is important. So, so one of the things that, uh, that that Rwanda has done, for example, is look at its uh, natural resources or, or its ability to grow food. And two areas where there's been great progress, and, and Victor could probably talk a bit more about this in detail, is in beverages, uh, particularly coffee and tea, uh, both of which uh, Rwanda is now producing premium brands that are sought after around the world. I mean, Arabica coffee uh, is, is one of the most sought after brands, mm-hmm. coffee brands mm-hmm. in the world. It supplies the big chains. And it has moved from really just um, uh, supplying low-end, 
uh, consumer coffee that you would find in a mm. you know a, a jar in your in your supermarket to really uh, going for high end premium organic uh, top quality coffee. Uh, mm. So so that's where taking even your you know something that you were exporting previously and and getting more value out of it by by focusing. Um, but yes, you know the IT sector is something that didn't exist 15 years ago. Mm. So uh, it's being it's, it's playing smart. It's a small country um, that you know a, 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 similar, a similar country I might I might bring up is Israel, which does have has no resources, um, but is a leader in in the IT and high tech field in, mm. in the world. Mm. Well, great points that are being brought there, Jigen Gray. Uh, in terms of uh, you know, I know that uh, uh, President Kagame brought in American agronomists to help boost Rwanda's low-quality coffee to super uh, premium grade. I remember seeing pictures of him walking in in various um, uh, coffee uh, f- factories and him working with various experts and scientists to really um, heighten uh, this uh, uh, coffee uh, value. Uh, within the country. Jürgen, are you there with me? Yes, yes, I'm there. No, I'm, I'm, yeah, just, just, just to say that point again, as I said, I mean, you know, you see a strategy now uh, being actually um, um, being rolled out, whereby, um, you know, the leadership in Rwanda is thinking global, but acting local. And I think also what uh, Steve talked about planning, but I think planning is important, but what's more important is execution. And we're beginning to see um, the strategic execution that's, um, that's being actually now uh, um, rolled out in Rwanda. If we agree that regional integration has long been the strategic objective for Africa, yet despite some of the successful, I mean, some of the successes we've seen in eliminating tariffs, for example, within regional economies, uh, regional um, communities, um, the African market still remains highly fragmented. So you see a range of non-tariff um, regulatory barriers you know, that, that, that actually raise the cost of transactions, um, also limiting the movement of goods and people and capital across um, the African continent. What we're beginning to actually see is a policy that's being put in place to actually eliminate these barriers in Rwanda. So it's one of the easiest countries to do business. You can go in there quite mm-hmm. easily be able to set set up and um, set something up quite easily. And also the visa restrictions have just been lifted. I mean, when um, last year, when um, the African Union prioritised the freedom of movement um, with the vision of uh, borderless states, um, Rwanda basically put its money where its mouth is and just basically said that you don't need a visa to come into this country. You can get one upon arrival. Very few countries mm-hmm. are actually now respecting some of these decisions that are taken at the AU level. In fact, they go to an AU summit, they take a decision, and then the next thing is five years down the line, it's still the same problems that we're seeing. But we are beginning to see that in the leadership of Osama, he is really looking at reforms, not only within his country now, He's actually leading the reforms of the AU. And if you look at what are these, some of these fundamental reforms that he talks about, a large part of it is actually mirrored towards the experience that Rwanda went through. So I think, again, we're beginning to now see some kind of peer learning and also the leadership at the leadership level trying to at least um, 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 disseminate or dissipate some of those, um, some of those practices and some mm-hmm. of those experiences um, that Rwanda has had um, more, not only at the regional level, but also at the continental level. So I think that's a, that's a serious positive going forward, mm. and I think that's a space we need to watch um, as to now how he's able to, when I, when I mean he, I mean uh, both he and himself, how he's able to now influence his other peers um, well, to be able to at least start um, um, emulating some of the good practices that uh, Rwanda has taken.
Well, Victor, let me give you the last uh, say in terms of uh, that strength within uh, uh, Rwanda to find its kind of strength and to find that balance that we've been talking about, especially with its diversification in, in, its, in its sectors. I mean, your experiences of what's happening there, it must be thrilling to see just the intention yeah. and the focus that the country has when it comes to its economy. And that's the thing. These two gentlemen have been great because they, they observe execution, they observe differentiation, knowing what you're good at and doing it because we plan, plan, plan a lot. We talk and talk and talk. Mm. Paul Kagame does that. Just an anecdote to close. I admired how they, when he did the visa on arrival, I went there in May of last year for the Af- World Africa Forum, World Economic Forum for Africa, and they were doing the visa on arrival. They were using some tablets on the side when you arrive. And you could apply without anything, put your credit card details and take a picture of the receipt on the, on the tablet and go <laughs> to the counter and, and get your visa awarded because you had proven that you were. And the reason they could do that was at the airport they had free, unlimited, unkept high-speed Wi-Fi. Oh, so you could log on to the Internet and do that. But I went in October and I found that they had taken the tablets off because they said they were too slow. Mm. You see what I mean? Mm. So in a space of five months, they wow. have managed to test <laughs> something, see what it was. They said, you know what, just come to the counter and we will take your credit card and we'll make it much quicker mm. because they found perhaps that the tablets were hanging sometimes. But what I liked also was that's the only country where I found that the VIP counter where people were going through for their visa application was slower than where the ordinary people we're going through. <laughs> so you don't need to be a VIP to get any kind of special <laughs> treatment. Because, and, and I experienced it when I was traveling with one ambassador and they had blocked access to the airport for security reasons and he flashed his diplomatic whatever and said, no, I'm a diplomat. They said, no, this time we are closed here, even for diplomatic vehicles. So you don't need to be a VIP. That's, the, that's what I like. So as long as you know what needs to be done, you, you go to the right sure. counter, you get a signal. Nothing beats that, Benjamin and, and the two gentlemen in studio. And I, and I think this is a template that Africa must emulate.